On today's show, I talked to Peter McCormack, host of the What Bitcoin Did podcast and chairman and owner of the Real Bedford Football Club. We talk all things Bitcoin. This is your host, Omer, and welcome to the Ozone Podcast. Peter McCormack, welcome to the Ozone Podcast. Hello, man. Thanks for having me. Love the shirt. All right, cool. Thanks. Well, this is interesting because you have no idea who I am, but I feel like I really know you well because I listen to your podcast all the time. So oh, thank it, you. it's very kind of an interesting thing. Is that something that happens when people meet you? Like they feel like they know you, but you're like, who is this guy? Yeah, but it's um, it's really humbling. You, you can only appreciate it if somebody uh, listens to your podcast, like they listen to yours, uh, enables you to or gives you like the energy to do it more. And you, you've mentioned you've just launched, so you're in the early days. Um, but yeah, no, I'm always humbled and grateful to anyone who does. And you've got a Real Bedford shirt, so you're supporting my football team as well. So yeah, no, I love it. Thank you. Appreciate you a lot, man. Yeah, no, no worries. Can you tell me about your Bitcoin journey? How did it start and how did you end up where you are? Yeah, um, okay. So 2013, um, got introduced to Bitcoin through the Silk Road. I uh, didn't really pay too much attention to it, but I was just intrigued by this dark net marketplace where you could buy anything you want. I didn't spend much time so much looking at the asset itself. I was just more intrigued by the website and what you could do. I'd, I'd purchase some Bitcoin on local Bitcoins and transferred it to this long string of numbers and letters and you know, whatever, 10 minutes to an hour later, it appeared there and I was able to spend it. And that was interesting and cool. And I was trading Bitcoin on a on a website called Plus 500. It's like a CFD. So it wasn't really trading Bitcoin itself. It was just like a, a derivative product. And I, I went through the the run up to 1200 uh, and then saw it crash back down and then just kind of forgot about it. I wasn't really that interested. And then uh, end of 2016, 2017, my mother was very sick with cancer and we wanted to treat her with cannabis oil. And the only place I knew where you could buy it was the darknet. So I went on Coinbase, uh, bought some Bitcoin and we purchased the the cannabis oil to treat her. Unfortunately, she passed away and I went back on Coinbase to sell the Bitcoin. And there was this other thing there called Ethereum. And I was like, oh, what's this all about? So I Googled it and it appeared that there was this new kind of blockchain revolution started. And I was like, okay, I, sh I should pay attention to this. Uh, and I was in between jobs. I'd quit the advertising industry a year before. And so I was, I was intrigued. So I, you know, I bought some more bitcoin and i bought some ethereum and every shitcoin going and it kind of went down the rabbit hole in 2017 learning about it and you know towards the end of that year i kind of realized i wasn't going to be a trader i wasn't really cut for it and uh started a podcast called what bitcoin did which i think the first episode was november 2017 and uh here we are what's that nearly seven years later and i'm talking to you Amazing. So what was it like going on Silk Road? I mean, many years ago, I just read about the dark net and I tried to go on there just to see what was going on. I felt scared just being on there. There were like websites supposedly for like murder for hire and this and this. And I thought I'd just check it out for fun. But I actually felt scared going on there. I was like, who knows? Maybe the government is watching me just even surfing there. So what was that experience like? It was mainly fascinating. Um, this idea that you have this website that can operate 
essentially, I know it got found in the end, essentially nobody who knew who was running, where it was distributed from. And it was a network of buyers and sellers uh, around the world selling things that you can't buy in the shops, things that are deemed illegal. There was no murder for hire on the website. Um, I, I don't remember there being, say, pornography, but there were certainly drugs. I don't remember if there were weapons, but you could get fake IDs. It was kind of a very libertarian concept before I'd even heard it. And I was always intrigued by it because not only could you buy weed, you could buy cocaine, heroin, any drug you wanted, almost in any quantity. Wow. And so to me, that was absolutely fascinating. I, I would just go around it, looking at all the different sellers, what they were selling. I was intrigued by how they photographed the product. Um, they, you know, they would maybe have a, a like a block of cocaine and then they would have like a piece of paper with their username on it next to it. So you could, you knew they actually had the cocaine and there was a really interesting story. I think it was Jake Hanrahan may have done it for Vice where he actually went out and researched the, the, the people selling it. And what was really intriguing about it is the site essentially took violence out of part of the drug trade. So historically, uh, you have drug wars between gangs and you also have risk between the buyer and the seller because it's not a regulated market. It's a, it's a black market. So if you're buying any form of drugs of a dealer, you, you, you're you always at risk to going into a violent situation. And certainly, I think the more you buy, the more dangerous it is. You know, maybe if you're buying a small personal amount, there's... There's no incentive for the dealer to to attack you or you to attack the dealer, but at higher amounts, maybe there are. But because there was no meeting place between the buyer and the seller, that interaction uh, didn't have violence in it. And you know, if you research the Drug Policy Alliance, they actually were very pro the Silk Road. They said it took violence out of the system, uh, but also because the marketplace had this review system, the dealers would sell a more pure product, which means there was less risk of impurities that could cause health issues. And so for those people who are going to buy drugs anyway, whether it's meeting at a local shop or in a car park to using a, a dark net marketplace, what you essentially done had made it a much safer process for them. I was very intrigued by that. It was only when I went back the next time because we wanted cannabis oil for my mother. It wasn't actually the Silk Road. I think that closed down by then. It was uh, something I think it was called Sheep Marketplace. That was when I became a lot more intrigued because it was like this. This wasn't just recreational use. This was a medication we wanted for my mother's pain that she was dealing with, uh, cancer. And uh, in those scenarios, you, the law doesn't matter. I don't care that the government law says she can't have cannabis. I don't want to treat my mother. I'm just going to do it. So I suddenly became intrigued by this ability to route around government things that I I, I disagreed with. But no, it, it was fascinating. Uh, sadly, Russell Albrick uh, is now in jail for the rest of his life. He got a double life sentence worth 40 years. I'm um, friends with his mother, Lynn. We we speak occasionally. She's been on the podcast. And I've written to Ross and you know, he's written back to me. And it's I think it was a very interesting time for Bitcoin. Sorry to hear about your mother. I know I've heard that you mentioned that before. Um, just quick question there. Was the cannabis oil helpful? I mean, I've heard many different things. Um, did that help alleviate her, her pain? No, it was too late. I mean, she was already re receiving a lot of pain medication, um, uh, opiates, because she was uh, very close to death. And and she died, uh, I, I'm going to say, within a week of us getting the cannabis or even less. So, no, it was too late for my mother, sadly. But but I am a big supporter of it used as an alternative medication for pain. You know, I've noticed the successes it's had with people with uh, epilepsy, perhaps, or you know, certain forms of depression. Uh, and I'm a big supporter of research going into this. But yeah, no, sadly, it was too late for mum. So you mentioned Ross, and I mean, that's quite a story in the Bitcoin community and outside it. And it's very unfortunate. 
but I don't really believe government versions generally. I mean, potentially, but just because they say something happened, I know he was supposedly convicted of like trying to hire murder plots, but he doesn't seem like that kind of guy. And just listening to a little bit about his mom, that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, is that something that you think was trumped up and would he be somebody you could potentially get on the podcast or they just wouldn't let you do that because he's in prison? Yeah, getting to talk to him is very difficult. That they uh, Bitcoin, I think it's Bitcoin twenty twenty one or uh, the conference in Miami. It may have been twenty twenty two. We did have a short piece from him where he spoke, uh, and it was uh, it was recorded and played. It was quite an emotional thing to hear because uh, he's mainly full of regret. He has a very tough life now, and he's in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, of, of course, I'd love to interview him. Um, his story is very personal to me. I don't know if I would be doing this podcast or any of this without Silk Road, without the discovery of that. That's how I discovered uh, Bitcoin. You know, that thing, that that whole side of it to me is very personal. And, you know, I, I would like to talk to him. Um, in in terms of the, the story, I don't know. I, I can only go by what Lynn has told me and his denial. He absolutely denies this. Um, and there was lots of strange things with the evidence and the data in the case. Uh, there were people accessing systems. Some of the agents who were involved in the case had uh, stolen some of the Bitcoin. And so it's very difficult to trust everything that happened with the information. Um, so, yeah, I, I I don't know. I doubt he did, but, you know, I can't answer conclusively. Sure. But I 100% support the idea that th this man should be freed. I think Mike Novogratz said it once. He said that nothing good is being uh, served by keeping him in prison for the rest of his life. He is not a danger to society. I feel like we need a real political shift. I mean, there's not to go into too much of a segue, but people like Ross, Assange, um, Snowden, I mean, they're political prisoners to, to an extent or prisoners of a policy. So you talked about um, Ethereum and other shit coins. When did you have like that light bulb moment that you thought like, hey, this is Bitcoin is what I like? Gosh, I'm going to say a few months into doing the podcast, I was doing a series about the Lightning Network. Uh, and, and one of those interviews was, was with someone called Peter Risen. And I was very fresh, very green to Bitcoin. And and some people were very upset I was doing this interview because he was considered a B-casher and he had criticism of the Lightning Network. And people are saying, you shouldn't talk to him. Uh, and I, you know, Shinobi was quite direct with me about this. And, and you know, I was getting a lot of heat on Twitter regarding it. Uh, so I spent some time thinking about it and you know, I only, by that point, I'd only owned Bitcoin. I'd got rid of all my shit coins and I realized like the only use case I have is Bitcoin. That's the only asset I use. Everything else, every other uh, crypto coin blockchain has these promises of, you know, what problems it's solving, what it's going to, you know, what its use case is, but I just had no use for any of them. And so I just realized like Bitcoin itself is is so interesting. I'm I'm just going to focus on that. Now I have used since uh, Monero, and I have used stable coins. I've used uh, Tether on uh, other blockchains. I used uh, Tether on Tron when I was in Argentina to be able to get hold of dollars. And so that use case exists. So I am conflicted because I think Tron is a shit coin, but at the same time I had this use case. And I know other people do in struggling developing economies. They have a use for stable coins. So I do have this conflict whereby I'm I am completely focused on Bitcoin, but I I you know accept and understand that there is a need for for Tether. But the, but the great thing is people doing some other good work. You know the Aqua um, wallet has come out recently, which supports uh, Tether on Liquid. So hopefully, you know, we'll see more people move towards in Tether in that environment. So I'm going to ask you maybe the hardest question uh, on the podcast. Yeah. So what is Bitcoin? Mm, well, 
you could ask a hundred people that question and they can answer it a hundred different ways. I'll answer it in the way where it was if one of my friends in the pub and they were intrigued because I've got the podcast and I would just say to them, Bitcoin is just money. That's all it is. It is money. And it's money that has different properties to the money that we use on a day-to-day basis. And so I would say, look, there are three main types of money. There is gold, there is fiat currency, and there is Bitcoin. I'll say, let's forget gold for now, because to me, Bitcoin is just the digital evolution of gold. Okay, so we have fiat money, the pounds you have in the pocket, and we have Bitcoin, which is a digital form of money. So I would say to them, I have Bitcoin because I think it's far superior than fiat money. And I think it's superior for the following reasons. It is a decentralized peer-to-peer network, which is censorship resistant and also uh, has the property of scarcity. And those those are things I care about. And I really care about the decentralization, which gives us a censorship resistance. And I really care about the scarcity, which gives Bitcoin value over a long term. And so then I would explain to the person that you know, we've, we've gone through a high inflation environment for the last couple of years. Well, that is because we have a massive increase in the money supply. And so I'd explain the Cantillion effect and, and the reason this injection of uh, money into the system leads to high inflation. I'll say, I therefore prefer Bitcoin because I can send it to you without an intermediary. Nobody can stop me. And I like to hold Bitcoin because over a long enough period when I'm trying to save money, if I save in pounds, it's melting away. If I save in Bitcoin, it's appreciating. So that's how I explain Bitcoin. But really, Bitcoin is just money. I tried to explain to some friends and family as well. And sometimes you get these questions. Uh, maybe you do too. Um, how do you answer them when they ask, uh, the government invented Bitcoin or uh, Satoshi is going to, you know, there's a backdoor and he's going to rug pull it. I mean, I try to explain to them how secure the network is. Um, how do you answer those questions? Because those are some of the questions that people who don't know anything about it and think it's a Ponzi or are skeptical. Well, listen, if the government did invent Bitcoin, congratulations to them. They've invented a, a better form of uh, money than fiat money. Um, and if they are the people sat on the Satoshi coins, then congratulations to them. They are uh, sat on a gold mine. Um, but the idea that um, there is a backdoor, which I think Jamie Dimon said recently when he was in Davos, uh, I just explained to him, look, uh, Bitcoin is uh, free open source software and all the code is uh, available to be to be read, viewed, audited by the developers that work on Bitcoin. If there was a backdoor, they would have found that backdoor. There is no backdoor in it. Uh, Satoshi, as I believe, had good intentions and therefore Bitcoin is a gift to the world. Um but yeah, there's no backdoor. I don't know if you saw yesterday, I saw online, um, Obama was being interviewed. And I think he was talking about Bitcoin because I didn't see the full clip. But he said, it basically, it's like having a Swiss bank account in your pocket. And he was saying that as a negative thing. And I think to most Bitcoiners, um, you know, that's what you want. You you know, that was awesome. Yeah, no, uh, I think that's an old video, though, isn't it? I'm sure uh, maybe, maybe. Before. Sometimes yeah, they I circulate online. Good. And maybe, maybe you're right. It could have been at a prior conference or something. I mean... <laughs> I understand what he's saying, but it's not exactly a Swiss bank account in your pocket because Swiss bank accounts are known to be an opaque. It's a gray system. And Bitcoin isn't. The the ledger is public and open. You can see all the transactions that are in it. But I understand what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's, it's a way to hold money outside of the system. But that's a good thing. I mean, look, we have seen the massive surveillance on, on our transactions, on our money. Uh, we've seen the distortion of our money. 
the debasement of our money. We have seen money has been taken. It's almost like money has gone from being ours, what we use to trade between us, to what the government has, and they kind of let us use and manipulate how they want. I don't want to be part of that. The government, uh, especially here in the UK and in the US, have proven themselves decade after decade to have both nefarious and incompetent ways of managing the financial system. And who gets hurt the most? It's the little guy. Who benefits? It's the elite at the top. So, of course, uh, I want a Swiss uh, bank account in my pocket. Of course, I want a system which is based on rules, not rulers. So, yeah, go on, Obama. I'm with you. So, I mean, I know this might be tough for you to answer because you're kind of like right in the middle of the Bitcoin world, but how fringe do you think we are? I know a lot of people say, you know, it's becoming more mainstream. There's the ETF now, but at the same time, you know, how many people actually are into Bitcoin as opposed to, you know, just kind of heard about it? What's your opinion on that? I know it might be a little bit difficult for you, but you do meet a lot of people. You travel a lot and maybe you've encountered someone who hasn't heard of it. I don't know, but what's your take opinion on that? Well, listen, we, we may not have mass adoption yet, but we have mass awareness. Everyone has heard of Bitcoin these days. It's very rare you meet somebody and they're like, oh, what do you do? And I say, I have a Bitcoin podcast. And they're like, well, what is Bitcoin? It's like, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, people have heard, they know of Bitcoin. So I would say Bitcoin naturally started fringe. You know, the idea that there's this decentralized form of money, which the government didn't create, that was created by this anonymous character called Satoshi Nakamoto, which has these properties of censorship resistance it's a peer-to-peer -peer network it has this scarce it's like the stuff of a fantasy and so to play around with that you had to be on the fringes you had to be the kind of person who was willing to invest their time and resources into to developing something where you had the confidence and belief this could become a, you know, a massive financial system and over the years i think it continued to attract people from the fringes Cycle after cycle, Bitcoin continues to prove itself. It doesn't die. It should have died, but it doesn't die. It continues to grow. Um, the, the promises of wealth preservation continue to be proven right. Uh, and, and so naturally, it's at some point, it crosses the chasm. It, it leaps out into the mainstream. And I think the, the ETFs are a huge reflection of that, in that people like Larry Fink are like, huh, what is this thing that doesn't die? What are its properties? hold on, we are in a high interest, high inflation environment. We need a product for our customers, which protects them. It is, as he said, a flight to safety. You know? So I think we are crossing the chasm. I think we are entering into the mainstream and we're doing that via financial products that come from traditional financial institutions. I can't give you a number, right? but definitely go in more mainstream. Yeah, so it's interesting you said Bitcoin died or people say it died because that they, there's so many different news articles. And I'll be honest, like I kind of got my dad into it, but he texted me multiple times, maybe in like 2019 or 2020. And then uh, earlier this year or last year before the run up, he's like, Bitcoin's dead. And I was like, no, it's, it's, it's program. It's going to go back up. But, you know, people see it go down who haven't been through a cycle or who don't really follow it carefully. And the declaration of death is pretty common, but, you know, there's really no comparison to a tulip, which just died. But, you know, a lot of people like to think, think that or have been told that by, you know, like MSNBC or kind of mainstream TV. Well, it's lazy. Yeah. Calling it tulips is utterly lazy. I mean, you only have to do the basic research into the history of the tulip mania to understand, like you said, it went up and it came very back, it came straight back down and it died. Yeah. Bitcoin continues to produce blocks every 10 minutes. We are now at $45,100. It continues to grow. 
it has been adopted by uh, mainstream uh, financial institutions. It is it has liquidity in every country in the world, whether that's through regulated exchanges or grey markets. I think it's a naive view of Bitcoin, but you know I don't I don't know what it's like for you. I mean, I heard about Bitcoin very early on, didn't even pay attention to it. And then somebody told me about the Silk Road and I kind of had a look at it, but still didn't play with it properly. It wasn't until 2017. But that that gap between 2013 and 2017, when I really started accumulating, I started accumulating when Bitcoin was you know, six, $700. I could have been accumulating it was $60, $70. I cost myself a 10x in that period of what I could have accumulated and then I've missed that compound growth over the years. I think most people are going through the same. Your your parents or your friends or your family might be asking you now, but they're like, they're doubtful and skeptical. Maybe in four years time, after the next death and rebirth of Bitcoin, they're like, holy shit, yeah, it doesn't keep dying. And you you keep do keep talking about it. Okay, tell me a bit more about it. And so, you know, I just think this this is the way Bitcoin works. People just need to, to hear it a few times. They need to understand it's not going away. They need to have it explained to them. But yeah, I don't see any death for Bitcoin. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, maybe like three, four years ago, I was pretty heavy on trying to orange pill uh, or get people into Bitcoin, my friends, family. And I almost felt like an urgency, like if they don't get on this, they're going to like sink. But, you know, since then, Bitcoin went up and down and, you know, there's many opportunities for people to buy it. But I don't really tell people to buy anymore. I feel like there's enough information out there. And I don't want to sound like that guy who's kind of harping on something. And if they buy it at 50,000, it ends up at 20, then they kind of look at you funny. Um, so I stopped, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time trying to tell people in a lot of my WhatsApp groups and friends. And, you know, a lot of people got into it, but I'll, although I don't think they're like really into Bitcoin, they just kind of see it as a financial instrument, you know, like a stock or a trade. You go about like telling your friends, I know you have a podcast is what you talk about, but how about in your personal and family life? People, everyone who knows me knows now what I do. They know I have a Bitcoin podcast. They know I have a football team, which is uh, based on Bitcoin. If they want to ask me, they can. I, I, I leave them to it. I leave them to their lives. When they're ready, they can come to me. I invest my time in just building this podcast and, and getting content out there and, and helping the people who are ready for it, the people who want it, the people who are on Google searching for Bitcoin podcast or on Spotify or Apple. That's where I focus my time. But no, you know, if you keep going on at people about it, they end up just find you fucking annoying. Right. Um, you're talking about your podcast, What Bitcoin Did. So how does it feel like, I think it's it's the number one Bitcoin podcast or it's uh, up to, I don't know what the rankings are, but it feel like that's the most popular one, at least in my life. So how does that feel to have like that top podcast? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the top one, but um, I, I put it a different way. I feel very fortunate that it's become a career because uh, I expect yours is a hobby for you right now. Right, yes, Absolutely. My, I was the same, you know, six, seven years ago, I, I recorded my first show and it was a hobby. And uh, I worked very hard at it for the first year, year or two and eventually found uh, a couple of sponsors. And those sponsors meant that uh, I could earn a living off it. And now here we are six, seven years later and, you know, six people work on the podcast. We make documentaries. You know, we travel the world. Uh, we interview super interesting people. So I, I don't really think about is it the biggest and should it be the biggest? And what does that mean? I, I think more about the fact that I just feel very fortunate that I get to to do this as a job full time. I mean, it's, it's super humbling. I, you know, you, I have people, I've received 10, 20 emails a day from listeners who have ideas or challenges or just want to say thank you. And, you know, to have that is brilliant. If, if mine is the biggest, someone will get a bigger one. We get new entries all the time. Maybe it'll be you, maybe in four years time, you know, 
Uh, mine isn't the biggest anymore and I move on and do something else. But just right now to be able to have a career off it and earn money off it, I, I feel very fortunate. What made you go into podcasting? At the time, I was in between careers. I used to work in the advertising industry, uh, which was great. I loved it. Um, but I'd met somebody called Rich Roll who had a podcast. So I used to go running and he's like this vegan ultra athlete. And when I was running, I used to just listen to his podcast. He interviewed other athletes and and it was cool. And I ended up at a retreat that he was running and met him and spent some time with him. And I just said to him, listen, I, I really like your job. I really, I really like what you do. How do you do it? And he's said, buy this equipment. His, there's a course online by Pat Flynn. Watch that course. Uh, find your first interview. And and then uh, his main advice was stick at it because lots of people came to him and said, I want to do a podcast. And many gave up. He said, you just got to stick with it. Be patient, work hard and stick with it. And then he became a bit of a mentor. And, and I'm really glad I did. I'm really feel really fortunate to have met him and had him as a, a mentor and been been able to build this career out of it. You've had many interesting guests. I know you've interviewed uh, Nayib Bukele, the um, leader of El Salvador, and many other famous people and controversial people. Uh, what would you say is was your favorite interviews, or maybe you know the most difficult or challenging ones? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean. My very early interview with Lynn Albrecht is like interview 10 of the podcast. Ross Albrecht's mum was a very important one because uh, after I did that, after she left, I was I was really struck by the interview. What she was telling me was important. This is her son's life. It's her life. It's mm -hmm. her family's life. And so I realized that, like making this kind of content is important. Telling these stories is important. So that made me want to do it as a, as a job and, and work harder at, at it. Nai Bukele obviously was a very important one. I mean, yeah, I started like you as a hobby. That's all it was. And then four or five years later, I'm flying to El Salvador to interview a president of a country. I mean, that's insane. It, it, there's no world where that makes any sense. I am just a moron from a small town in England called Bedford who one day decided to start a podcast. Uh, and here we are. Um, challenging ones. I mean, I find the technical ones more challenging. I'm not technically minded. I'm more of a storyteller. It's not really a challenge. It's I just feel very lucky. It's a gift to be able to do this day to day. I've I've had some shitty jobs in my time, and and some people have to work shitty jobs their whole lives in factories or you know cleaning streets or just doing tough jobs. Uh, my dad worked as an engineer on shift work for thirty five years, you know, and my job is to talk to people. So I don't ever look at it as a ch challenge. There are challenges outside of it. You know, there are pressures. Um, I don't know if you've got much feedback on yours yet, but people want to give you feedback. If, right. if you hold an opinion they don't like, some people can get angry with you. It's like they don't understand how you see the world differently. And and I think the job of a podcaster is, for me, is to try and present as many different views. Show, show the different people in the world who see the world differently and try and help people understand that. Some people don't want that. They are firm in their views of the world. And if you don't agree with me, then I'm going to yell at you. And I find that a challenge because I prefer to talk things through with people. You do a lot of many podcasts, so you have, I'm sure you have many interesting guests. I mean, I listen to your podcast, so I know, but sometimes you might have guests that are maybe they're not as interesting or, you know, a little bit difficult to extract information. How do you navigate that? I know you're a good storyteller. Do you, is that like an issue or do you usually just have guests who are, you know, willing to talk freely and you get some good content? No, you're right. I mean, you will do some interviews where people give one word answers or short answers or they don't they seem disinterested with the interview and, and that's a challenge because i don't know it just feels a bit shit if you're interviewing somebody and they're not imagine like this interview i was like nah they're all all right next question yeah. <laughs> we shit for you right right and so 
and you do get some people like that. And so the way I approach it is differently. Like I try and like, we're doing this over zoom, but I try and do all my interviews in person because in person there's like this commitment. And so with that commitment, they've come to talk and uh, no, I just, it's just my job. I think after doing 800 interviews, you kind of learn how to ask questions and kind of navigate a conversation and warm somebody up and take it in a certain direction. I also have Danny with me now, my producer. So, you know, if, you know, uh, sometimes he might get involved or he might ask a question to take it another direction. And do you like the celebrity you have within the Bitcoin community? I think a lot of these people who are listening to this podcast may not know who Peter McCormick is. I talked to a couple of friends like, yeah, we kind of heard of him maybe, but within the Bitcoin community, I think everyone knows you. So how does that feel and how does that change your life? I don't really think of it as celebrity. Um, but it's funny, I was I was in London at dinner the other night with a friend and we're having dinner. Some guy comes over and said, oh, are you Pete McCormack? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, oh, thank you. Your podcast is great. And for the person I'm having dinner with, they're like, what, what's that all about? I was like, it just happens occasionally. So, you know, maybe once every few weeks, once a month that happens. But I didn't think about it like that. I mean, it happens with my kids sometimes. So it's quite funny for them to see it. I think of it more as a duty, like a responsibility, that if there's that many people who think it's that important, I have a responsibility to make the best show possible because it's an important show for people then. So I think of, more, of it more like that. I mean, look, I remember when I first interviewed Laura Shin, she was the biggest podcast in the space. And I was a little bit like, wow, meeting Laura Shin and you know, taking her back. And so I understand how people feel like that. But I just think it's it's just a really nice thing. It's a nice thing to live through that people appreciate the work you do and it's and it's meaningful for them. One of the things is obviously there's pros and then there's cons. And I don't know if that's something, uh, how you deal with that. Because like online, you know, Bitcoin community is bipolar. There's a lot of nice people. And then there's some crazies. And I see you get a lot of heat. I know sometimes, and maybe this is just my opinion, maybe a few years ago, you did some more kind of troll type posts, but I don't see you doing that anymore. But you still get, there's some people that just want to hate on you. And um, I always see you as a very decent guy. You know, I never thought like, hey, I want to hate on Peter McCormick. But there's a bunch of guys on there that will be calling you all sorts of names and saying you're an agent and this and that. I guess that goes with the territory. But like, how do you yeah. deal with that? And why do you think you get that heat? Yeah, look, it gets easier over time. There's certain times when like, I'm like, oh, a bit drained, but I might give Danny a call or my brother a call and talk through it. Like in the last few days, I've been uh, a little bit critical of this Tucker Carlson interview. I've kind of made my points known on that. And I lost a thousand, over a thousand followers for it. Because oh, wow. People are like, yeah, they're like, you're a moron. You, 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 Surely by now you understand how the world works. And why are you trying to cancel him and he should do that's like a, he should do the interview i agree he should do the interview it's just my view is he isn't a journalist like how i think a journalist vladimir putin is a psychopathic leader of a mafia state that it's twice invaded ukraine outside of the other human rights abuses they've committed across the uh old soviet republic countries uh, and so i have my views on this and i i hope he asks the tough questions but will he ask the tough questions and so that's difficult because we live in a, you know, in the Bitcoin world, you've probably got a, a tendency to have people who are more suspicious of government, suspicious of mainstream media, of uh, government. But I, I I find there's like a hypocrisy in that because Tucker Carlson comes from the mainstream. He was he, he worked for Fox News and he, he has disseminated some bullshit in the past. He was part of that. He was a mouthpiece for the administration. Why is this, this fascination with Putin? I, I find it really odd. It's almost like, He's the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but the enemy of your enemy can also be your enemy, right? And so, yeah, it comes with pressures. But look, over time, it's it's, it's weird. When it's early and you get the odd bad comment, it feels bad. When there's so many, it's just like, oh, this is the territory that, that I work in. And I just kind of like, yeah, swallow it up and accept it. 
do you think your background in marketing and advertising kind of helped build your podcast because some of the content you put online, your posts and stuff, does that make your podcast as popular as it is? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, because, you know, when when I set it up, I know how to set up a good website. I know how SEO works. I understand branding. I know how Photoshop works. I could create nice graphics. So I think that helped. But I think there's a couple of other reasons why I think it's done well. We've, we've always been very good at sourcing guests. Uh, even now, we're always looking for new, interesting guests. I think my approach is just different. I'm, you know, I can be quite humble uh, at times with it. I'm, I'm not afraid to admit I don't understand things and get people to explain complex technical points. Uh, I think we're a little bit more centrist, whereas I probably many of the other podcasters are maybe a little bit more conservative. Can you tell me how you got into owning a football team? And for the audience, that's a soccer team in 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 England. Yeah, tell the story about that, please. Um, yeah, I mean, just being from Bedford, yeah, we don't have a team in the professional division. So I, I, I really wanted that to make that happen. I wondered if I could. And so for a long time, I thought about it. I just didn't have the money. It's an expensive job. But then one day, I just kind of sat through it. I thought, hold on, hold on, hold on. If I make us the Bitcoin team, maybe the Bitcoiners will support the team and maybe the Bitcoin companies will support it. And that allow us to have a financial model and a business that can make it work. And so I approached a few of my sponsors and said, I'm thinking of doing this. And they're like, yeah, go do it. We'll support you. And so we did it. We announced it. Um, we bought the club. We rebranded them Rail Bedford. We made them the Bitcoin club. And so far, it's it's worked. We won the division and uh, we look like we may win it again. And the ladies are top of their division. So it's kind of worked. But yeah, no, it was really just, you know, what else can I do? Because the podcast is repetitive. You know, three shows a week question after question it, it's quite fun to do something a bit different do you find the owning a football club is fun or stressful or both it's both it's both it's a roller coaster it's this weird thing with most businesses as long as you're in a market where there's enough demand you know how to operate a business you know how to run your PL. You know how to price, you know how to manage staff, you know how to source it. Like if you're a good business operator and there's a, a market with demand, you can build a successful business. The weird thing about a football team, you can do everything right. And then come Saturday, you have 90 minutes where you're relying on these 11 players and the substitutes and the manager finding a way of getting three points. And that can go completely and utterly wrong. And you could be the best business in the world in the background but you don't get enough points and that affects the trajectory of that business. It's such a strange thing. And so, you know, weekends or Tuesday nights become very emotional because you're, you're wanting the win. And sometimes it doesn't happen. We lost last week. We'd won 16 games on the trot. We drew a game, won a game, and then lost a game. So we dropped five points in three games. And that was hard to take, you know, it affects your whole weekend. I mean, you come home drained like you're what a cry and and then you're like okay let's go again speak to the manager how do i help you but it's very emotional again it's another thing but like having a podcast people constantly attacking you it's uh yeah it's a crazy thing for people that don't know i think it's start it's a lower division and your goal is to kind of keep winning and the opposite of relegation is when you move up i don't know what the term for that is but uh you get uh, promoted i guess to the next division so like what division number are you in right now and what's like kind of the pathway we started in the 10th tier of English football, the first being the Premier League. Uh, we won that and we're in the ninth and we're now top of the ninth. So hopefully we go to the eighth. My goal is to get to the fourth, which is where the professional leagues start, where everything changes. It's a lot of work, man, but we're doing our best to do it. It's uh, There's so many challenges, these infrastructure, accelerating costs, 
our ladies are in the fifth tier. They're top of that. They're, they're almost certainly going to win that and go into the fourth tier of there. Similar challenges. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I saw that um, you're having some political issues in town. I think there's another football club and you're having some issues with your field. What's going on there? Yeah, just some issues uh, with renewing the lease. So we have a, a lease from the council for the facilities. There's two years left. Um, they came to us recently and said they didn't want to renew the lease and they wanted to move us somewhere else. The challenge with that is you have to have ground gradings for every division you're in. So it's important that you have kind of st some stability about that because if you don't have the correct facilities, you can actually get relegated, you know, move down a league, which after you've won a league, you don't want that to happen. And so we've just been working with the local council, trying to help them understand the challenges of building a football team, help them understand what we've done for the community and trying to get them uh, to support us. We're making progress. Fingers crossed that will be sorted soon. So what is your team in the Premier League? Who do you follow? Liverpool. Who's yours? To be honest, I used to be like many years ago, I used to like Manchester United, but then I just kind of followed a little bit more La Liga. Now I'm kind of neutral. I mean, I went to the World Cup and I just had fun there. So I'm a real Bedford fan now. Yeah, I'm a real Bedford fan. I literally am, but uh, I don't have like a team per se. So you're a Liverpool fan, but you now own Real Bedford and you've probably been a Liverpool fan your whole life, right? How does that yeah. fanship compare now? Because, you know, if you're a football supporter, you know, it can get pretty emotional and now you have another team. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I. <laughs> I can't even tell you who the next Liverpool game was. You go back two years, I, I could tell you who were playing Saturday, what time, or if it was Sunday, who were playing Tuesday, if, if, how many points we had in the league. Uh, since taking over Real Bedford, that's kind of diminished. This is more important. This is you know, People say to me, who do you support? I'm like, Real Bedford. They're like, no, who's your property? And I'm like, Real Bedford. And they're like, okay, do you like anyone in the Premier League? And I say Liverpool, because genuinely I support Real Bedford now. That's my team. It's because it's my town. It's more important. Liverpool's four hours away. It's less important. I'm entirely focused on Real Bedford. And, and now I, I don't know who Liverpool play. And if they're on the TV, I'll watch them and I want them to win. But no, it's all about Bedford now. You have a term that you came up with, uh, the cheat code or the Bitcoin cheat code. What is that? Yeah, it turns out I didn't come up with it. It turns out somebody else came up with it. Um, I think it was John from 10, 1031, the Bitcoin agents, uh, uh, VC. But the idea being is that the reason I was able to not buy this team, but take our team up through a couple of leagues and be successful is we made us the Bitcoin team. And so I refer to that as the cheat code. You know, once we're the Bitcoin team, suddenly all the Bitcoiners around the world are going, well, that's my team. I want them to win. And so they back us and, and they buy our, look, you're wearing a jersey now. Uh, we sell a lot of merchandise. We have people who travel from all around to come and watch us play. And so that for us is, is yeah, it's super cool. It's like super humbling, but it is a cheat code. And that's why I say to most people, you can adopt the Bitcoin cheat code. Like if you were a plumber, you could become the Bitcoin plumber. And if I go on your website and I'm like, oh, you're the Bitcoin plumber. Oh, great. I'll use you because I know I can pay you in Bitcoin. And and also with you being a Bitcoiner, there comes that like intrinsic trust in the way you operate because of your outlook on the world. And so, yeah, it's a cheat code. We're now doing a conference called the cheat code, explaining what it is and you know, hopefully helping other people exploit it. So when is your conference? April the 12th and 13th. It's uh, two months away. There's a so lot to do. Man. It's a little bit before the Bitcoin halving, right? A few days before that, theoretically? Yeah, it looks like it might be a week a week before it. I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but you were involved in like a lawsuit with Craig Wright, who claimed to be Satoshi. I know that was kind of off limits because of ongoing litigation, but I've seen recently you posting a bit about it online. Are you able to talk about that? 
Yeah, not too much. I mean, look, I'm trolling him a little bit, but I'm being being very careful with my words. I, you know, he is in live litigation, and I don't want to. I don't want to relitigate. Uh, that was five years of my life that is taken up so far, and it's probably going to take up another year. I mean, six years in your life over thirteen tweets, uh, and the facing the prospect of bankruptcy. It it was a lot. What I will say is, I've been following the Copa trial. It looks like he's having a tough time. And perhaps at the end of this, Copa will win and we'll have a judgment about whether or not he is Satoshi. And we, you know, us as a community will be able to carry on. It's not nice watching uh, friends and developers and people get attacked by him. It has this chilling effect. If it is declared by the court he is not Satoshi, then we can move on from that period in Bitcoin and focus on you know, what we want to do with this protocol and this form of money, which is spread it to as many people around the world as possible. So when we talk about Satoshi, when I first got interested in Bitcoin, that was like the most mysterious and interesting thing. Like who created Bitcoin? This pseudo-anonymous person, Satoshi Nakamoto. And, you know, I used to try to watch YouTube videos and there'd be different people speculating on who Satoshi is. And now it kind of seems like it's kind of taboo to talk about that. And I understand no one really wants to kind of dox who the real Satoshi is. Is that something like in your deep inner Bitcoin circles that people discuss? Or it's just kind of like a no, something that people just kind of avoid talking about? Well, I think Satoshi made a decision to be anonymous, so we should respect that. The protocol is a gift to the world, um, a, a decentralized uh, open monetary network with a scarce asset, which has these profound effects on society. It has grown to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. It has fundamentally changed people's lives. It's helped activists. It's helped people bank the unbanked. It's, it has so many benefits to the world. I think the way we say thank you is, leave Satoshi alone. Now, people speculate on who it may be, and they could do that. Uh, if I ever knew, I would never say who it is, because I think that's that's the decision they made. And so I think that like the right way is to thank Satoshi is to allow their anonymity to remain. One of the things people talk about in Bitcoin is like Bitcoin maximalism. And uh, there's kind of a group think associated with some Bitcoiners. You have to eat a certain kind of food, steak, seed oil, this, this. How do you combat that? Because it's very easy, especially I think it's more difficult, actually, for someone in your position to kind of take a different narrative and kind of be like, hey, who is this guy? He's not kind of falling in line because I do see that as a problem. And that, is that what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, just like people do what they want to do. Bitcoin is about freedom, right? So you have the freedom to sun your balls and eat steak and do whatever. But if you want to be a vegan and and a runner or you do whatever you want and and these cultures uh, or subcultures will continue to proliferate and the monoculture of Bitcoin will not exist over time. I, th I think a lot of these kind of things around Bitcoin is somebody discovers something and like, oh, this is cool. And other people go, yeah, this is cool. And I'm going to do that as well. And other people reject it. Um and that's that's kind of interesting. Hopefully, you know, we've got a subculture around Rail Bedford, and hopefully that's the one that will proliferate for us and support our football team. You've traveled quite a bit. I mean, uh, you're making documentaries and I think traveling just to meet different people. What are would be some of the more interesting places you've been to recently, particularly in the global south? Yeah, so Lebanon was incredible. Like Lebanon for me, I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, and it's a very strange place because there's effectively no government there at all. You know, the, the state has collapsed beyond a small amount of energy they provide every day, passport provision, and you've got certain uh, army roadblocks. But generally speaking, it's been a complete collapse. And so what you happens when you see you see people just rebuilding it themselves. That's a fascinating place to me. I also had a great time in Argentina. Love loved that as well. Beautiful people, just really hospitable. 
uh, great stakes. Uh, and then I've also been to Africa recently for my first time. I went to Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi. Again, all beautiful places. It's tough. You see, you know, sort of levels of poverty I've never seen before. Very tough. But yeah, I mean, it was, um, this is where I feel so lucky. Yeah, I mean, there's a where different... Uh, well, I'm originally my family's from Pakistan, but I was born in New York and okay. uh, kind of raised in uh, New York. And now I live in Texas. So I've seen some poverty in Pakistan as well. Probably yeah. not to the levels of Africa, but it's pretty bad. You know, I have not been to Pakistan. I've been invited out. I would I would love to go. I've, I've been to your uh, your neighbors, India, but not nope. to Pakistan. How was that trip? It was great. Loved it. I mean, just incredible food, uh, incredible culture. Yeah, really warm people. I mean, look, I I went to Mumbai for a couple of days, which is, but I went down to Goa, which is a bit of a, like a hippie retreat. Right. I'd love to get back. I mean, I, I I love the whole region, um, uh, Asia, Southeast Asia. I just think that that's the best food in the world in parts of Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's spicy. I don't know if do you like spicy food. Uh, yeah, I like spicy food. Okay, so I know you're a boxing fan, so I want to get some of your predictions. Yeah. Oh, Who yeah. do you think is gonna win the? Uh, Fury Usyk fight. I know that got delayed recently from a cut. So, what's your thoughts on that fight? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, excited by that fight. I think Usyk wins. I really do. Is it because Fury looked kind of bad in the last fight, or do you just think he's Usyk is a better boxer? It, it depends how it plays out. Yeah, you know, if Fury is smart, like when he first fought uh, when he fought Klitsch, um, Klitschko, you know, he fought that smart. You know, he used his range. He didn't get into a fight. I think the I think his problem is when he gets into a scrap. I mean, I was at the fourth fight. Was it the fourth fight or the third fight in Vegas with what's his name? Wilder, Deontay Wilder. Yeah, right? Wilder, Deontay Wilder, where he got knocked down twice. He was saved by the bell in that round. If that round had gone on for another minute, he was cooked. He was finished. Um, and he got back and he boxed his way out of it, which is great. Usyk is a different prospect. And look, Usyk is really a cruiserweight. And what he's doing is incredible. Right. And yeah, the vision. But there's something about him. He's like relentless. He is hard to knock down. He's he's hard to beat. Uh it's it's a fascinating fight. I wonder how real this cut is. Yeah, I it's controversial. I met Fury after his first cut. You remember when he had a cut after he fought Otto Wallen? Uh I saw him at a fight after that, actually, and I could kind of see that one healing. So I'm not sure if it's the same cut or it's a real cut. Uh who really knows? I don't know if you follow light heavyweights. Do you have any opinion on like better BF and B-ball? No. I, to be honest, I, let, let me tell you something honest about boxing, right? Kind of fallen out of love with it. There were too many fights where there were poor decisions, poor points decisions. You know, it started to become like almost like every fight. You're like, oh, come on, split decision, really? And then uh, I also just don't enjoy that. I like going to the fights in Vegas. I think it's lost something going to Saudi. Right. I think it's lost the kind of glamour and the pizzazz. And so I've just I've just kind of fallen out of love with boxing. It's it's weird. I mean, I'll watch the big heavyweight fights, but I want them back in Vegas. Right. Or I want them at Wembley. That's where the pizzazz was. You know, Saudi just doesn't have that boxing feel. It feels like it's just about the money. They've bought the right to show the fights. But I just do you, do you know what I mean by that? Right. No, absolutely. I used to go to a lot of fights. I haven't been to too many recently. But um, I don't know. What can the UK and the US do to get the fights back? Because they weren't apparently giving enough money or the fighters are just taking advantage of Saudi paying out a lot right now. I mean, is there, do you see them going back? Is this a short-term thing or do you think this is going to be for a while? I think it's a long-term game. I think they're trying to get as many, many sports over in Saudi. I mean, you know, they've got their investment in football. They've got investment in live golf. I think that's part of growing in their economy away from uh, hydrocarbons. I just, I don't know. I just feel like something's missing now for me. 
I feel like in boxing, it's kind of it was a very easy takeover of a sport because there's so many promoter rivalries. There's no really strong infrastructure. So it was like easy pickings, you know, to take that sport there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I've just fallen out of love with it. You know, it's just become too much about the money. It just love, I fall out of love with it. Switching back to Bitcoin, um, I think, I don't know if it's your term or if it's just people say, you know, they come for the gains and stay for the revolution. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like people getting into Bitcoin because they're very intrigued about making money and then they end up liking all the freedom aspect of it. Was that something that was true for you? Um, yeah, I think so. What was it for you? At first, I didn't understand it. You know, I, I bought some Bitcoin and then very quickly got interested into these altcoins because, you know, they seem to be moving faster. So it was just like a time, it's just a trade, right? Or just something financial, something fun, a little bit different than the stock market. And then slowly you realize that most of them are all scams, if not every single, everything else. And then I kind of drifted towards that. So yeah, but at the same point, you do want the price appreciation. Unless, you know, I think it's easier for us to say that also being uh, in the West or, you know, a little bit more financially secure. I think if someone, you know, in some other countries, they probably want to see the appreciation more, right? Well, what do they say? Come come for the gain, stay for the revolution. Yeah. So. yeah that tends to be the journey most people go on. Come for the gain, stay for the revolution. I mean, you can't help but be drawn into the the kind of learn, going, down, going down the rabbit hole. I mean, look, you did it. You had to play around. Now you've got a podcast and you've got a football shirt of a Bitcoin team. Okay, well, um, this is a great interview. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, thanks, buddy. Yeah, just uh, what Bitcoin did. Search that on any platform. You'll find my podcast or search for Rail Bedford and check out my football team. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Uh, appreciate it. Appreciate you, man. Good luck. It was an absolute honor to be able to speak to Bitcoin legend Peter McCormack. Peter not only has the top podcast in the Bitcoin space, but now owns a football club based upon leveraging his success in Bitcoin and using the Bitcoin cheat code. Since the recording, uh, the price of Bitcoin has almost increased by 7000 now hovering around the 52000 market as the bull market seems to be in action. Upcoming is the Bitcoin halvening, which basically means that the supply of Bitcoin mining is going to decrease by half, which the Bitcoin reward right now is 6.25 Bitcoin per block, which will decrease to 3.125. Presumably, the decrease in supply will increase the price, although there are many other factors that relate to that. That halvening is supposed to happen approximately April 17th. It was also interesting learning a little bit more about the Silk Road. Uh, the Silk Road was an online dark web marketplace which was predominantly used for the drug trade. There's a pretty interesting story of the creator of Silk Road or the alleged creator, Ross Ulbricht. Ross now sits in jail with a life sentence. He didn't actually go to jail for having the online drug marketplace, but they caught him on alleged murder for hire charges, which some people think are trumped up. So there's quite a bit of a movement to get Ross out of jail, especially within the Bitcoin community. That kind of depends on your feelings about drugs and whether you guys think they should be legal or illegal, or if people who sold them deserve to be prosecuted as such. That's all for today's show. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and to YouTube. Also appreciate any reviews and ratings, which helps others find the show. And until next time, I'm out. Thank you.